Good morning, everybody. Please stand for the reading of God's word. It's, it's Romans 6, verses 1 through 8. <clears throat> what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died in sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been sent free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we were, will also live with him. This is the word of the Lord. Grace, you're joining me on this stage today. So if I get stuck on anything, I'm just going to call you in to sort it all out. So, all right. Okay. Well, last week, uh, we began a two-week uh, mini-series on politics in light of our political diversity. And I noted that we're probably somewhere in the ballpark of 50-50. I don't know if that's exactly right. But in terms of Democrat-Republican, we're a fairly diverse congregation. And my aim last week was to show how the two truths of baptism, dying with Christ and rising with Christ, correspond to our various political impulses. And I'm not going to try to re-preach that sermon. So if you didn't listen to last week's sermon, uh, I think you'll be okay with a lot of what goes on today, like following it. But you might, I would encourage you to go back and listen to last week's sermon. But I made the observation last week that the dying with Christ truth of baptism corresponds to a politically conservative impulse. And the rising with Christ truth of baptism corresponds to the politically liberal impulse. And the point for Christian unity in all of that is that both political impulses then, though not always true or right in their application or their expression in particular culture, they are both rooted in baptismal truth. So therefore, we need to be generous to each other within our diversity, recognizing that each of us are approaching the political diversity of our country from both the left and right, as it were, truths of baptism. So broadly speaking, our baptism, and this is kind of a, a theme of last week, broadly speaking, our baptism teaches us to see the good in all things, to see the good in all things, including politics. But, and here's where I want to focus us this morning, our baptism also teaches us to see the brokenness in all things. And that also relates to politics. So if last week's message was about seeing the good in both political impulses, left and right, this week's message is about seeing the danger in both political impulses, left and right. 
So we're going to stay in Romans chapter 6. We're going to continue looking at Paul's comments about baptism, and we're going to continue to draw uh, implications and application out of this text. And I want us to see that not only is the gospel composed of two truths, we looked at that last week, dying and rising with Christ, but that these two truths of the gospel, these two truths that are conveyed through baptism, exist in a particular relationship or a particular ordering. I'll explain that more as we go through. I want us to observe that this relationship this ordering, and then I want to look at what happens when we get these two truths out of order, and we don't order them properly, both spiritually in our Christian life, as well as politically uh, in the political arena. So like last week, the first half of the sermon is going to be looking at baptism, and it's a, it could be a sermon in its own right related to, to baptism, and then we're going to turn in the second half of the sermon and look at the relationship of those truths to politics. Okay, so our text here, again, is Romans 6, uh, 1 through 8. And what I want us to uh, pay attention to, particularly is in verses 4 through 6, a key phrase, uh, a key phrase that is repeated. And so just kind of note that as we read through here. But Paul is talking about baptism, like we looked at last week. And he says, uh, we were buried with him, with, we were buried, verse 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. He's saying the same thing three or four different times in three or four different ways to make his point. My son was telling me that when I'm giving him a lecture on something, I do the same thing to his annoyance, right? That I just repeat myself, right? Paul is repeating himself. He's saying the same thing, but there's a particular phrase that he uh, is using that he, he repeats here that I think is instructive. He says that we were buried in order that, in order that, we might rise. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Paul is seeing this relationship between dying and rising is not just sitting side by side, as it were, but that one exists for the sake of the other. We die in order to rise. Dying with Christ is not an end in itself. We don't die with Christ just to die with Christ. We die with Christ in order to rise with Christ. Or we could say this in good Aristotelian fashion for all my Aristotelian philosophers out there. Dying with Christ is a means to achieve the greater end of rising with Christ. Dying with Christ is a means to achieve the greater end of rising with Christ. Means and ends are not simply like two independent goods, both equally worthy in their own right. So think about tools, tools in a toolbox. Means and ends don't sit side by side like two distinct tools in a toolbox, like a screwdriver and a wrench. Sometimes you need a wrench, sometimes you need a screwdriver, and it just depends on the situation. You just use whichever one you need. 
Rather, means and ends fit together like a drill and a drill bit. The drill, the, the part you hold in your hand and you've got the power in it, provides the power and the force that enables the drill bit to spin and cut. These come together. You buy a drill and then you have to buy drill bits. They don't always come together. They're separate. As such, the drill doesn't exist as an end in and of itself. If you're trying to drill holes in something and all you have is the drill but not the drill bit, it, it doesn't work, right? The drill is a means to the greater end. But just because the drill is a means doesn't mean that it's any less important. Because the drill bit depends upon the drill to accomplish its appointed end. Right? So the drill bit doesn't have any power or any functionality apart from the drill. So both the drill and the drill bit are absolutely essential for drilling holes, but they're essential in a particular ordering or pairing or relationship. And that's how it is with dying and rising with Christ. The dying with Christ impulse of the, the dying with Christ impulses of baptism are the essential means that make possible the greater end of our rising with Christ impulses. So our baptism doesn't just teach us that there are two gospel impulses. That's sort of how I set things up last week to kind of introduce the topics, right? That there are these two gospel impulses, but it doesn't just teach us in Romans six that there are just two distinct gospel imp impulses, like two tools in our spiritual toolkit. And sometimes we need one and sometimes we need the other. And they're just sort of independent tools. Rather, baptism teaches us that these two tools, these two spiritual impulses fit together in a particular way, in a means and end sort of way. So let's go back to this baptism slide that we had uh, last week that highlighted these two impulses of the Christian life of baptism, truth, rules, justice, sacrifice, endurance, etc. All of these dying with Christ impulses are valuable as means. They're all good and necessary insofar as they are striving toward the and enabling the rising with Christ impulses of freedom and joy, etc., etc. We sacrifice for something. We endure for something. We have accountability for something, right? We don't have, they're not, the dying with Christ impulses are not ends in and of themselves, right? They exist for something. And what they exist for is the rising with Christ impulses. So coming to terms with the proper ordering or the proper relationship between dying and rising with Christ is a knife that cuts in two directions, so I'm going to wield this knife, as it were, in both directions. Those of you who tend to, as we talked about last week, prioritize the dying with Christ impulses, and right? if you resonate with the dying with Christ impulses, then I want you to listen closely because this first cut of the baptismal knife is for you. Uh, if you're uh, the sort of folks that, rise, that are the rising with Christ sort of impulses, you can listen in as I am slicing and dicing uh, the other side of the aisle, but don't get too comfortable because the knife is coming your way in a few minutes. All right, so here's the first cut of the baptismal knife. 
The dying with Christ impulses of our baptism, when they are valued as ends in themselves rather than as means, when they do not reach for and enable, when they do not serve the rising with Christ impulses, they become sterile and they become destructive. So what good is truth if it doesn't lead to kindness? What good are rules if they don't create a context for flourishing and freedom? What good is justice if it doesn't create a fair society? What good is denying one's self if it doesn't ultimately lead to joy? What good is a doctrinally sound church if the sound doctrine doesn't foster a spirit of love and community? All of the dying with Christ impulses are only valuable. They only have value when they're in service of the rising with Christ impulses. When they are viewed as ends in their own right, as worthy of honor and recognition independently by themselves, they become sterile and they become destructive. We can get ourselves in all kinds of problems if we make dying with Christ an end in itself. As if sacrifice and endurance and self-denial were legitimate in their own rights. We can see a good example of this in the gospel of what it looks like when the dying with Christ impulses become ends rather than means. And it looks like the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the theological and doctrinal gatekeepers of Israel. They were all about truth and rules and law and self-denial and justice and sacrifice and responsibility and accountability. I mean, they had everything on the dying with Christ list that we just had on the screen. Like they embodied those impulses better than anyone but none of it was in service of love. The Bible doesn't talk a lot about Jesus's emotional state, but as far as I can tell, the only two emotions that are ascribed to Jesus in the gospels are joy when he's praying and anger at the Pharisees. And when he's angry at the Pharisees, it's on precisely this point. The Pharisees have lost sight of the fact that the law, the rules of God existed in service of love. They've embraced the law, not as a means to lead to the flourishing of God's people, but they've embraced the law as an end in and of itself. The law was meant to set God's people free, to point them to the hope of a loving and healing and forgiving God. But the Pharisees had taken the law and they had turned it into a burden that oppressed the people. So you go back to Matthew chapter 23. I mean, Jesus, if you, you know, read through the gospels, right? He's always having run-ins with the Pharisees. I mean, David in the Old Testament, his arch nemesis were the Philistines. Who are, what's Jesus's arch nemesis? In the Gospels, it's, it's the Pharisees. Right? It is the Pharisees who have embraced a conservative impulse and they've turned it into an end rather than a means. So chapter 23 of Matthew, Jesus is uh, a rather famous portion of scripture. He gives the seven woes to the Pharisees. 
He's at odds with the Pharisees leading up to this passage, and he, he begins to critique them. But I want to note the beginning of his critique in chapter 23. He says, Then Jesus said to the crowd and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees, and scribes were like a subset of the Pharisees, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you. I mean, they're, he's in, they're telling you true things. They're telling you right things. You can't just ignore what they're saying because they're, they're expressing the law of Moses. And the law of Moses is true. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their fingers. So the Pharisees took the law of God and they laid it as a heavy burden upon the people. And it wasn't driven by love. They didn't have love in their hearts. And then Jesus goes through this passage and he begins to just uh, 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 lay out an invective against the Pharisees, his seven woes. And throughout, he calls them sons of hell, serpents, brood of vipers, whitewashed tombs, unmarked grave. And then at the end of this invective against the Pharisees, he calls down on their heads all of the blood of the prophets who have been killed since the foundations of the world. I mean, honestly, it's a bit terrifying. Justice without mercy, truth without kindness, accountability without compassion. No group of people raised Jesus's ire more than the Pharisees. And it's because they had turned means into ends. They refused to move from law to liberty. And instead they made the law an end in and of itself. Truth, rules, justice, sacrifice, endurance, self-denial, and so on. When these impulses do not strive toward the greater end of love, they are not just incomplete. Listen, they are damnable. Jesus was angry at the Pharisees because they didn't have love in their hearts. So for those of us who are strong in the dying with Christ impulse, we should tremor a bit when Jesus goes after the Pharisees. All right. Now let me turn the baptismal knife toward all the rising with Christ types. Because all of you rising with Christ types, you might be like, woot, woot, we're the end towards which this whole thing points. I knew we were better than all this joyless dying with Christ people. <laughs> but slow down a little bit. It's true that the rising with Christ impulses are the goal or the end of the dying with Christ impulses. So in that sense, your native impulses do have a certain priority. But to the same degree that the rising with Christ impulses are the end or the goal of the Christian life, the dying with Christ impulses are the foundation, the ground, the sole means of the rising with Christ impulses. So we go back to our text here in Romans chapter 6, looking again at verse 4 and verse 6, back to this word in order, right? We die in order to. And just as the implication is that the dying exists for the rising, the implication is that the rising can't exist, can't become a reality without the dying. So the, the rising with Christ needs the dying with Christ. 
The dying with Christ impulses are the foundation, the basis, the necessary means that makes the rising with Christ impulses possible. So for an illustration, take the example of the relationship between rules and freedom. Now, at first blush, it might seem that rules and freedom are opposed to each other, that they stand in opposition to each other, and that the more freedom, the way you get more freedom is by eliminating the rules. The less rules, the more freedom. But taking away the rules doesn't get you more freedom. It gets you this. This is what you get. If you've ever driven in India, they don't have rules of the road. And this is not an unusual picture when you get into the, the industrial parts of India, right? And that when we were in Ethiopia, we were doing our adoption. It wasn't quite that bad, but it was a lot like that as well, right? Rules don't stand in the way of freedom. Rules actually provide freedom. Rules provide the sort of order that is necessary for people to flourish, so trying to enact the rising with Christ impulses without first embracing the dying with Christ impulses is going to get you into all sorts of problems. Let's go back to our, our baptism slide. Kindness that isn't grounded in truth is just mere sentimentality. Freedom that is not based upon rules is anarchy. Joy that isn't founded on self-restraint is indulgence. Community assistance that isn't based on individual responsibility is enablement. Compassion without accountability, tender love without tough love, both are simply permissiveness. The rising with Christ impulses when not built upon the foundation of dying with Christ topple in upon themselves and they become destructive. So a better picture of these two impulses is not two lists side by side, but rather ordered in a foundational way, above and below. In every case, the dying with Christ impulses undergird and support, indeed make possible the rising with Christ impulses. This is how the Christian life works. So in summary, both aspects of the gospel, both baptismal truths need to fit together. We need them both, but not just side by side. We need to fit them together in their proper order. We die in order to live and we can't live without dying. Okay, now let's turn from there to politics. I am not a political historian, and no doubt many of you know more about the history of American politics than I do, but I want to begin by making an observation about how we got from there to here, as it were, in our political landscape with our two parties. The Democratic Party of today was founded in the late 1820s. The Republican Party was founded in the mid-1850s. So if you had the thought that somehow, like, at the American Revolution, we split into two parties and we've been two parties ever since, that's not the case. But we have these two parties that are the dominant parties today that were founded in the 1820s and 1850s, respectively. And it hasn't always been the case that these two parties were as politically polarized. They have been at various times, but are not as politically polarized as they are today. Throughout their history, both parties contained both liberals and conservatives. 
So it wasn't obvious that if you were a conservative, you went to that party and a liberal went to that party because both parties were kind of a mix. So for instance, during the mid-1900s, liberal, liberally-minded Democrats and liberally-minded Republicans banded together to propose anti-segregation legislation. The conservative wings of the Democrat Party and the conservative wing of the Republican parties banded together to block those attempts. So my point here is not that conservatives are always against racial equality and liberals are always for it. That's not my point. Many conservatives I know are genuinely for racial equality. My point is that in the not-too-distant past, these two parties were more mixed, having both conservative and liberal impulses in a single party. So it wasn't until the 1970s and then the 1980s that the two parties became increasingly more narrow and polarized into their present-day conservative and liberal polarities, such that today the Republican Party is virtually synonymous with conservatism. So if you are politically conservative, then you move towards the Republican Party. The Democratic Party is virtually synonymous with liberalism, such that if you're a liberal, you move towards the Democratic Party. And as a consequence, because they have become increasingly more polarized, where they're not mixed together anymore, or not, perhaps not at all, but they, they're not mixed together meaningfully, as a consequence, to engage politically today as a Christian, or really as a human being, is to be forced to choose between one impulse or the other. Because it's not one party that holds both of them together. Now we've, they've got them separated out. These parties are no longer, perhaps they never really were, they no longer fit together in a proper ordering. The conservative political impulse is now isolated from the liberal impulse and it becomes an end in and of itself. And the liberal impulse, trying to seek its liberal agenda but cut off from the conservative foundations that would empower it, is trying to seek its liberal ideals apart from a solid base. And I think that this then becomes the chief hurdle for Christians as we look to enter into politics. Just like baptism requires us to hold together a proper relationship between dying and rising with Christ, so too politics work best when a nation's liberal ideals are built upon the solid foundation of conservative truths. Neither political impulse taken in isolation is able to produce life. They have to go together in their proper ordering. So, with your permission, or without your permission, it doesn't matter, I suppose, let me offer a critique of the isolated conservative impulse, and then I'm going to offer a critique of the isolated liberal impulse. All right, so try to be equal opportunity offender here on this. The conservative impulse when not pointing towards the liberal ideal of love, becomes hard-edged and oppressive. Now, let me correct something I said last week. Toward the end of last week's sermon, I commented that both parties have policies and positions that are explicitly anti-Christian, namely pro-abortion on the left and racism on the right. But that wasn't right. The Republican platform does not have explicitly racist policies. It can't. That would be illegal, right? And that's the whole point of civil rights, is you cannot legally be a racist politically anymore. 
you can kind of morally in your heart be a racist, but you can't have, you can't have racist policies, right? So that was not fair to say of the Republican platform. But it's important for conservatives to bear in mind that the conservative political tradition does not have a great track record when it comes to the matters of race. Historically, as I'd mentioned a few minutes ago, it was the conservative wings of both parties, of the Democrats and of the Republicans, that advocated for segregation. And they continued to do so all the way up until the point that they lost the legal battles and it became illegal. Now, please don't hear me saying that all conservatives are racist because that's absolutely not true. I know many good conservatives that are not racist and that have a real heart for um, uh, racial equality. My point, rather, is that the conservative impulse, if divorced from a liberal end, can become racist. I think there's, there's a lot of reasons maybe why this, or there's different reasons perhaps why this happens, but here's my best shot at it. Conservatives, as we saw last week, care about structure and safety and security in the midst of kind of all the potential dangers of the world. And that's well and good. But when safety and structure and security are pursued as ends in their own right, when love is forgotten, it becomes safety and security at all costs. The reality is, and we experience this in our church here, diversity is messy. Diversity is difficult. Diversity feels unsafe. It can be unruling. And so it's, it's much neater and cleaner and safer to be a homogeneous culture. The conservative impulse compels us. It moves us. It, it makes us want to become more homogeneous because it's safer that way. But in that pursuit, the conservative desire for stability and safety and law and order becomes an end in and of itself, and it will tend to towards the oppression of diversity. The conservative impulse gets nervous about diversity because it's not as safe. So if the conservative impulse becomes an end in and of itself, it will move towards the oppression of diversity. And that was true of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were strongly conservative and strongly racist in their views of the Gentiles. Fraternizing with the Gentiles, they saw, had led to a breakdown in Jewish moral order. And as they developed a racist attitude towards the Gentiles, as a consequence, they led many of their fellow Jews, including the Apostle Paul, he had to extract himself from this. He led many, they led many of their fellow Jews into racism along with them. So what I'm saying in this is, again, not that all conservatives are inherently or automatically or destined to become racist. That's not at all what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that the conservative impulse, especially in politics, if that's kind of the, the world you live in, then be open-eyed that the conservative impulse when it becomes an end in and of itself, as it so often does in the political landscape, when it forgets the higher goals of equality and love, it can get quite ugly. Right? So if your liberal friends say that they can smell a whiff of racism in the conservative tradition, they're not making that up. And we've got a lot of history in this country to underscore that point, even if it's not true of every conservative, and it's not. So don't let your conservative impulse neglect the higher calling of love. 
when it comes to politics. Now, let me critique then the liberal impulse. Because the liberal impulse politically, when it's not grounded in God's moral order, it does not liberate. It becomes permissive and it becomes enabling and ultimately it becomes destructive. American society, going back into the 60s, the liberal impulse was was in ascendancy, right? That's why we got the civil rights. But the same sort of liberal impulse that brought us into the civil rights, which was good, also brought us the sexual revolution, which hasn't been so good. The 1960s sought sexual freedom from the constraints of Christian morality in particular. But free love was anything but free. Out of wedlock births, skyrocketing abortion rates during the 60s and the 70s, an increase steadily in sexually transmitted diseases, and a present-day divorce rate that now is about 50%. These have been the prices that we have paid for free love. We thought that we could find our way to freedom apart from God's rules, that we didn't need the man upstairs telling us what we needed to be and how we needed to be, that we could create our own free, just society without the foundation of God's truth. But we've only brought the house down on top of ourselves. My point here is not that all liberals are immoral, because that also is absolutely not true. I know many liberally minded people who are very moral. My point rather is that the liberal political impulse, if divorced, if separated from a conservative foundation, it can end up in immorality. Human beings don't know how to govern themselves. This is one of the conservative truths that we need to hold on to and remember. Human beings do not know how to govern themselves morally. We need God's moral order his divine will as revealed in Christ and scripture to know how to build the liberal project of love. We try to build the liberal project of love, not on the foundation of God's moral order. We build something that just topples in upon itself. When we think that we can build a liberal tower of freedom and equality on its own foundation, we fail. And we've seen that in our culture. So if you tend towards the liberal impulse, then be open-eyed that the liberal impulse, when it ignores a conservative foundation, it too can get ugly. So when your conservative friends say that they can smell just a whiff of immorality in the liberal tradition, they're not making that up either, even if it's true, even if it's not true of every liberal. For a truly awful example of how devastating the conservative and liberal impulses can become when they are not properly ordered in relationship to each other. Just consider World War II. In World War II, the two most destructive and oppressive leaders were Hitler, who was the fascist leader of Germany, and Stalin, who was the communist leader of Russia. Now, philosophically, ideologically, politically, they were on opposite ends of the spectrum. Hitler despised Stalin for his political methodology and his political philosophy. And Stalin, likewise, despised Hitler for the same reason. But Hitler's fascism was the conservative impulse severed from the liberal end. 
When you take the conservative impulse and you cut it off from a liberal end and you run that all the way to the end of the street, what you get is Hitler's fascism. But Stalin's communism was just as bad the other way. Stalin's communism was the liberal impulse severed from the conservative foundation. Stalin took his political philosophy from Marx and then from Lenin, and Stalin enacted that vision, and it was just as destructive as Hitler's fascism. And between the two of them, they killed millions and millions and millions of their own people and plunged Europe into a war that just devastated the continent. And their example is a sobering reminder of what happens when the conservative and liberal impulses are severed from each other and then pushed all the way to their ends. As the gap between our two political parties widens, our capacity as Christians to insert ourselves, to insert our baptismal impulses into our increasingly fracturing and polarizing political context becomes more and more difficult. It's tough to know what to do sometimes in the position that we are put by our fracturing political systems. Imagine for a moment that you were living during the world, days of World War II and a truce was called and they decided they were going to decide the outcome of Hitler versus Stalin by a vote. Who would you have voted for? I mean, it's an almost impossible question. Now, the Republicans are not fascists, and the Democrats are not communists, despite what we read in social media. Right? It's not as bad as any of that. Thank God it's not as bad as any of that. But tragically, as the polarization and isolation between the two parties deepens, and it is increasingly deepening in our day, we are more and more as Christians put into a position where we can't vote in a way that holds these baptismal truths together in their proper order? Do we cast a vote in a conservative direction, even though our vote runs the risk of encouraging the racist impulses of an increasingly isolated conservatism? Or do we cast a vote in a liberal direction, even though our vote runs the risk of encouraging the immoral impulses of an increasingly isolated liberalism? I mean, that's a tough call. And I don't fault any Christian for making a different choice than me with that vote. From a biblical framework, our baptism teaches us the unity of God's truth, the ideal, the unity, that all of life is built around the twin dynamics of dying and rising with Christ. As our two parties move increasingly further and further apart, it becomes harder and harder to hold together the unity of God's truth. So let's all be aware and beware the dangers that come when we move into a political context that forces us to choose between baptismal truths. As we move into a space where we're forced to choose between baptismal truths in such a polarized context, our choices necessarily become sub-Christian. Now, I'm not saying we should not move out and try to influence as we can, but we have to understand that we are being put as Christians into a political situation where we cannot express the fullness of our Christian impulses in the ways that we would ideally want to. 
And it's messy and it's complicated. So let's be generous to our Christian brothers and sisters who choose to make those difficult compromises in different directions than we do. All right, let me close with this thought. And here's, I think, a hopeful word for us. What American politics is unable to do, the church is both called and empowered to do. Only through Christ are human beings able to hold together the right and left impulses of reality. In our union with Christ, in his death and resurrection, we have the ability to move from death to life, from truth to grace, from rules to freedom, from justice to fairness, from sacrifice to empowerment, from endurance to healing, from self-denial to joy, from tough love to tender love. I was talking with a potential worship leader uh, who's interested in the position that we have here at Calvary. And he was asking questions about the church and getting to know the church a little better. And he noted that one of the things that interested him in our church was our political diversity. He told me that he had been in racially diverse churches before, but he had never been part of a politically diverse church before. And in his mind, Calvary's political diversity is an indicator that we are coming together around something higher than politics, that we are bonded by our loyalty to Christ over and above our loyalty to any one political party. And I think he's right. And what a great witness to our community. We as a church, insofar as our chief loyalty is to Jesus, have the capacity to show our local community what it means to hold together the left and right impulses. Because our, our, our culture, politically and beyond, wants to keep fracturing them out. And they don't produce life. But we can bring them together in Christ. Our baptism teaches it to us, and we can show how they produce life. We may not all agree about how best to work out the inevitable compromises that come when we enter into the political arena. But we all do agree that our only hope, the world's only hope, is ultimately found in Jesus Christ. And that it is his conservative death that has led to his liberating resurrection. So let's strive to continue to be a congregation that leaves genuine room for political diversity. Not because political diversity is some valorized good in its own right. But because churches with political diversity will almost certainly be churches that hold together the baptismal left and right impulses. Hebrews 12, 2 admonishes us to keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. I think that's a, it's a great little way the author is emphasizing both the conservative and the liberal realities of Jesus. Jesus is the author. He is the foundation. He is the, the basis and he is the perfecter. He is the embodiment of the ideal end to which we are all pointing. And in him, he holds all things together in perfect unity. So as we close, we're going to sing a song that celebrates the person of Jesus Christ. Since we want to strive towards unity, we strive towards Jesus 
And as left and right strive towards the same Christ, we come together in Christ in a way that brings blessing out into the world. So let me encourage you as you move out into the political season that we have here that's upon us and the votes that need to be cast, do what the Lord leads you to do. Do it with the spirit of conviction, but also do it with a posture of humility and generosity to the unity that we have in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Amen. Father, thank you that you have given us Christ who does hold all things together. He is the embodiment of the baptismal truths of dying and rising, of being a creature that is made in your image. Lord, help us to follow Christ, to follow towards Christ, to, to approach him and see in him the essence of all that we are called to be. God, help us uh, to love each other, Help us to love you and help us to live our lives for Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.